my name is Erica Lorraine Williams, and welcome to the Sight Black Women podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have a special guest, Amara Jones. Amara Jones, whose work has won Emmy and Peabody Awards, is the creator of Translash Media, a cross-platform journalism, personal storytelling, and narrative project which produces content to shift the current culture of hostility towards transgender people in the United States. In 2019, she chaired the first ever UN high-level meeting on gender diversity with over 600 participants. Amara's work as a host, on-air news analyst, and writer focuses on the full range of social justice and equity issues. Amara has been featured regularly in The Guardian, The Nation, MSNBC, CNBC, NPR, Mike, Color Lines, and is a frequent guest host of the In the Thick podcast. Amara has held economic policy posts in the Clinton White House and communications positions at Viacom. Amara holds degrees from the London School of Economics and Columbia. Amara is currently a Soros Equality Fellow and on the board of the Anti-Violence Project and the New Pride Agenda. She goes by the pronouns she, her. Welcome, Amara, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Erica. Um, and we're also friends, so this is going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> yes. Forgot to mention that. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your journey that led you to be who you are today? Um, you want the whole podcast? Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, my journey that led me to be who I am. I mean, I think I can, I can actually talk um, about what I wrote about recently in mm -hmm. um, Teen Vogue, which is that, you know, I grew up always knowing who I was. Um, and it's so strange because there was the boy that everyone saw on the outside and wanted me to be, and then the actual person, the girl who um, was inside. And um, my life would have been so much easier if I had grown up even knowing the words gender dysphoria, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, and perhaps the lives of the people around me, but I didn't know. And so what I learned how to be was in so many ways what people wanted me to be. And there's a part of us that when you practice something long enough, it actually just becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. And so it became habit just to be, um, you know, a boy and then eventually um, to grow up into adulthood in the same. But at the same time, you know, who we actually are is always there and it doesn't go away. And so for me, my entire life has been about these series of excavations um, mm -hmm. I know you'll appreciate that analogy, um, being an anthropologist, because I really do think that, like, you know, we are constantly excavating our lives. We're digging our lives. We are discovering who we are by peeling back the layers of the accumulated sediment that we can collect as we move along. Um, and that can be true for, for anyone. And so I think that that's what my life has been defined by is this this excavation of myself, right? And getting closer to to the bedrock of who I actually am. And that's just been um, defined by so many turning points along the way. But I really, really believe that that's what my, my life um, has been about. Wow, thank you so much. I love that metaphor of excavating and discovering and kind of peeling back the layers to, to discover who you are. That's really rich. Um, so in, in an early June article, you published an op-ed in the Griot 
titled Iyana Dior's Beating Proves Black Lives Still Don't Matter If You're Trans. So what is your take on the recent uprising against anti-Black police violence, and particularly in terms of its treatment of Black trans women? Yeah, I mean, I think that I would, it's interesting because I, I would say that recently that there has been a positive shift towards recognizing that we must center Black trans women in this struggle, which I think is really essential. Um, that's been because so many of us in various different ways have been raising that alarm, culminating into the incredible march um, that now is the largest trans march in the history of the United States. It's fascinating that the largest march for transgender lives and transgender rights was assembled um, and put together by Black women for Black trans women. So that's it's historic and noteworthy. But I think that overall, and I do still think that this is a problem, particularly if one goes online and look at the Black masculinist um, in huge quotes and Black hotep culture, which somehow mm -hmm. has seeped into Black masculinity overall, which is not a good thing. But, um, you know, this idea that somehow um, we don't belong. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's a bigger problem here, which is that there's a centering of Black men's lives. Yeah. There's a centering of Black men's lives in almost every aspect of the Black community. And what that means is that we end up perpetuating patriarchy. And we end up perpetuating this system of hierarchy and exclusion that doesn't work for us. It has not gotten us more free. Centering Black men's lives hasn't gotten us any closer to true freedom um, at all. And I think that we have to change that. And so we start out with this, this, this narrative of Black hierarchy. We can see it in the way that the stories are told, who gets centered. I mean, Breonna Taylor was an afterthought, right? There are the people um, who killed her are still at large. And then within that, in this hierarchy, after Black women, of course, are Black trans women, um, and so we're excluded and left out and treated as if we we're dispensable. But that's because of this hierarchy of Black patriarchy that's actually really poisonous to our community. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Can you um, just can you say a little bit more about what happened to Iyana Dior, just in case some of our listeners may not be familiar with that story? Yeah, it's real. I mean, it's the irony of ironies that in during the height of the, the George Floyd protest and the outrage, justifiable outrage, I have to say, um, against his death one week later, there was an incident where in the parking lot of a convenience store in, in the Minneapolis, in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, there was some sort of fender bender, which is unclear of what happened um, in the parking lot, but something where somebody's car hit someone else and somehow a black trans woman was involved in that. And so she went into the store and then a black woman gets out and essentially says, that's the person that um, hit my car um, or tapped my car, I think is the word she said, who tapped my car. And then essentially because the convenience store was a hangout, when she said that kind of this mob like carnival atmosphere from that store, um, these black men were like, who, who are you talking about? And then for the next 20 minutes, proceeded to like go inside of the convenience store where Iyana had kind of held herself up. She was like, she was um, posted up kind of in the back of the store, away from this woman, away from the crowd. Um, 
And then they would go in for the next 20 minutes, um, calling her name, then going back outside, drinking, smoking weed, hanging out with their boys, and then go back inside. It was just this like accordion of moving from the inside of the outside where she had been cornered. And then it grew to about 20 people. And then they were, um, you know, misgendering her, calling her gay, all this stuff. And then at one point when it reached a crescendo of this kind of frenetic activity, about 12 people jumped her, literally okay. descended upon her in the um, in the convenience store and savagely beat her while calling her he, calling her all sorts of, of terrible names. And it was clear that her gender identity was what led to people to treat her like she was an animal. And that's at the exact same time as those very same people, those very same overwhelmingly Black men who perpetrated this violence were saying that people should care about their humanity and their lives when they weren't doing the same. Mm-hmm. Wow. I like I like what you said about, you know, the centering of Black men's lives hasn't gotten us more free, right? This perpetuating patriarchy has not gotten us more free. So it almost makes you wonder why people keep reproducing or keep doing the same thing over and over again if, if it's not leading to us being more free. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because of the mythologization of Black men in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that somehow Black men will and can save us. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea in so many ways um, that was started during enslavement where black men, you know, dreamt of having the same power that white men had, the the power to, you know, have themselves and their families respected, to have their children respected, to have kind of their labor respected. um, And so, you know, what was created was this idea of essentially blackness as whiteness with a black face. And in so many ways, that's what we've we've been pursuing. When what we need to do is to return to these models um, that don't um, have that. And, you know, we can talk a little bit maybe about some of the thoughts that I have around that and the way that our ancient past ties into that. But I think that that's that's the problem. We got got the wrong idea about what um, freedom looks like. Yeah, yeah. So you did mention the um, Black Trans Lives Matter rally on June 14th that took place in Brooklyn, and it had about 15,000 people. It's been called the largest trans-based protest in history. Um, I believe you were there, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at the rally and the significance of it for this political moment? It was really interesting because I woke up that day and I realized that the march was there and I couldn't figure out where I was going to go or wasn't I I wasn't going to go. And then I had forgotten that I had actually sent a member of our team to go there to actually film and to record mm-hmm. that day. And so then I was like, oh, you know, I forgot I sent her there. Let me, I better go, I just better just go. I better just go check mm-hmm. on her. I kind of want to see it. I was very res- reticent for a lot of reasons. One, because I was actually not feeling that well that day. Mm-hmm. And I got there and I was one stunned by the number of people there. And I know that the organizers were also totally stunned as one of the yeah. people who put it together um, mentioned Eliel Cruz that, you know, he's like the largest trans march I ever been a part of and 
ever helped to organize was 900 people. That's the most that showed up. And this time wow. there were 15 times as many. And it was in front of the Brooklyn Museum and the press area and the speaker areas were in the same place. They actually let the press get really close to where they were. And so I went up um, through, I went up to the stage, basically got on the stage and was really close to all of them. And when you looked down just to see people as literally as far as the eye could see. Um, I actually wow. personally think that 15,000 is an undercount. I think it's probably closer to 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just astounding. And so we had this, I was having this moment of trying to observe what was going on and get direction to our shooter. But then at the same time, actually being a trans, black trans woman myself, trying to mm-hmm. take in this moment and all the rest of it. And it was just incredibly, incredibly powerful. It's hard to put it in words. It was, it was just astounding. Um, mm-hmm. and was and remains a very, 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 very hopeful moment in all the darkness. That's, wow, that's wonderful. Um, So some more good news is just last night, you premiered a short documentary, The Future of Trans. Um, And today you published an article about the documentary in Teen Vogue, in which you state, and I quote, the future is one without gender conformity or the need to perform gender roles. And I really love this idea of focusing on trans futures, especially in a context in which we often hear that the average life expectancy of a black trans woman is 35 years old. So can you talk a little bit about your goals for the documentary, The Future of Trans, as well as your ongoing docuseries, Trans Lash? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the hope is to center our humanity um, Mm -hmm. and to get and to have that front and center, not the fact that we are objects or, or even what we do in life to be centered, right? Or our ability to be able to generate interest or visibility or consume or create, none of that. The, the, under, the underlying point is to say that um, we exist, we are human, and therefore we deserve the same dignity and rights as everybody else, period. There actually isn't anything left to say after that. And what this series was motivated by was two realizations that I had, which was that one, um, growing up, I did not have the ability and the gift, quite frankly, that most children have, which is the ability to be able to see themselves in the future, right? Mm -hmm. That ability to see yourself in the future as yourself is actually a part of the inspiration of life, right? Regardless of whether or not the things that turn out well, right? Regardless of whether or not when you're a kid, you're like, I'm, I want to be a firefighter and you end up being like an astronaut, right? <laughs> like the point is that this vision of yourself is one of the things that helps to propel us. And I didn't have that. Um, and so I wanted to give myself that gift, right? Of being able to imagine myself in the future. And it not only true, what's fascinating for me is that that's not only true for people like me who spent, you know, most of our childhood in the 80s, it's also true for people who are 19 and 20 right now. Hmm. You know, one of the people in the film, Tony Michelle Williams, who's in Atlanta, she directs uh, Snapco um, there, said that she, at 28 and said that the first time she could start imagining a future for herself was five months ago. Wow. And she's 28. Hmm. And so um, it's a common thing that we have And I realized as well, parallel to that, is that 
imagining yourself in a future at a time of social erasure and backlash. You know, it is not a stretch to say the Trump administration is trying to kill trans people and to erase us. Um, and that honestly, so are parts of the black community, right? Black, um, uh, black trans women, um, the epidemic of murder against us is an epidemic. And I'm not saying that, that's what the American Medical Association said. Mm-hmm. So I realized that at those moments of erasure that imagining ourselves in the future, that that's a radical act, saying that whatever yeah. you're doing to me, I'm going to be here on this point. And it reminded me of what someone Native said to me once, Native American from the U.S. said to me once that, you know, they've been exacting genocide against us for 500 years, and we're still here, and we're going to be here when they leave. Hmm. Wow. And that imagination is a power and that I wanted us to embrace in this moment. That's so powerful. So you mentioned the Trump administration and there's been lots of things happening. Um, we've seen in the news that uh, the Trump administration recently rolled back protections against gender identity discrimination in healthcare. Um, I think, then I think it was the next day or a few days later, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of LGBTQ workers. So what do these changes mean for trans people and Black trans women in particular? Yeah, they they mean and they don't mean, right? So the way Mm -hmm. in which they mean is that it says that um, trans people can't be discriminated against in employment. So that's the ruling. It's a narrow ruling, but it's significant in, in some important ways. One, the rationale lays the groundwork for there to be an overall expansion of trans rights through courts and through litigation, because essentially in the court um, opinion, what they said is trans women are women, trans men are men. You can't discriminate based upon the definition of sex. And that is clear. That's essentially what they said. And that's also a radical idea in our society right now. Right. So I think that that's one of the things that's that's really important from that. And so it will form the basis for those um, who are in the legal profession to go back and try to overturn the trans military ban, the ban against our equal access in healthcare, which came out last week, the ban for us to have safe to um, have safe schools that Betsy DeVos put out, safe schools where trans kids are protected from bullying and violence that Betsy DeVos put out saying that we can't, you know, the discrimination against us in passports, only issuing us two-year passports for us versus 10-year passports for everyone else, et cetera. That like all of that can now be challenged in court and probably won't stand. What it means is that there's still a long road ahead and that those active Mm -hmm. forms of discrimination are going to continue until they get knocked down by one by one by one. And it also does not do anything about the state's Um, 20 of which across the country right now have active laws where they are trying to put on the books to discriminate against trans people, specifically trans youth. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of work to be done. So it's huge, monumental, and historic because it's the first time that the court has ever ruled on trans rights ever in the history of the Supreme Court. So um, it's huge in that way, but we have a long way to go. We know that that's the fight in America, right? Just because you have one win doesn't mean it's over. So true. Um, so, since you know, in the Cite Black Women um, project, you know, we think a lot about citational politics and practices. 
So I was wondering if you can talk about who are the Black women authors, scholars, or activists who inspire your work? Whose work gives you life and who do you cite? Well, um, that's a long list. Okay, Brittany Cooper, 100%. (laughs) Has her feminism is so relevant and so um, so incisive. It just cuts through everything. I think that that is essential and key for me. I also think this is going to be weird, but also fictional work. So 100% mm-hmm. Octavia Butler yes. is essential to that. I also think the revolutionary framework um, of Dr. Angela Davis is also essential because she has given a broad system of thought about how to um, undo oppression. I think that I think that her scholarship and is undervalued for whatever reason, or rather overshadowed. Like there really is a wide system of thought there that people can tap into, sort of a mm-hmm. roadmap for how to get free and how to maintain freedom that is all laid out. Um, that needs to be, I think, raised up and lifted up. That's um, that's incredible and um, super essential. Um, I also think um, that um, I was going to say one other person. I've read so many people. Um, mm-hmm. um, they're not they're they're black man, but um, C. Riley Thornton's work as well. I think mm-hmm. is incredibly groundbreaking um, mm-hmm. around gender and representation historically and 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 right now. Um, and also, honestly, Dr. Um, Doris Santana's work. See, I could go on. I'm going to stop right now, but she's the yeah. last one because one of the things that Dora does in her work that's so incredible that we need to also like raise up and lift up is that she imagines black um, femme, black women cultural practices in the Afro-Atlantic world as technology. She describes, she describes our knowledge, our cultural practices as a technology um, and as a technology that takes us across space and time. And so the things that we've inherited are the things that we build a future with because in African and Afro cosmology, the past, the present and the future are all united. And that there's so many ways in which we culturally practice that that we don't even recognize and realize. And that is really important. So those are just some of the black That's women great. that I, I know and like to say. That's great. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, so actually, speaking of Brazil, Dora Santana is, is Brazilian, from Brazil originally. And we actually met um, 13 years ago in Salvador, Bahia, Brazil. And um, I think we met in dance class, like <laughs> dancing uh, with Paquito, a dance teacher there. And so I know that Bahia is a place that is almost like a second home for you. So what can you say about the situation for uh, uh, Black trans women in Brazil? And are there efforts to promote transnational solidarity or connections between Black trans women in the U.S. and Brazil or other parts of the world? So a couple of things. I think one, you know, you're also leaving a key part of the story out of it where you that's when you were like working on your dissertation. <laughs> so and gathering information for your dissertation. And I think that we both thought the other was Brazilian in class first. I think that Mm -hmm. that's what happened. So that, um, that says, uh, a lot. The other thing, um, 
on your question of, I think that there is beginning to, that's a huge interest in my work is to begin to do some of that. Um, mm-hmm. Understanding that the, some of the situation of black trans women in the United States is very similar to that in Brazil, is very similar to that in South Africa, um, is very similar to that in East Africa. There's a ton of um, trans work that's going on in East Africa right now, you know, mm-hmm. underscoring that this idea that we somehow are new and are Western is just totally bunk. And we have to begin to knit that into a larger framework. And so that is a passion of my work going forward. I really want to do that much more. Um, and there is that there are those conversations, but it hasn't yet gelled into a broader framework, but we are increasingly aware of each other. And I think that that's really key. And I think that, um, you know, I just had a really fascinating thing for, for me. I, I wrote about this in Brazil when I went back there after transitioning for the first time mm-hmm. uh, back last year. And I was reticent. And what I was really blown away is how it actually turned out to be the place where I have been misgendered the least. Like wow. almost it didn't, it actually didn't happen there. Um, and there are two places where that happens. It's really interesting. It's Atlanta and it's Brazil. Um, Mm -hmm. both places that I consider to be home. And I think that it's because there's something in places where Black women are centered. um, Mm -hmm. There's a way that Black, our gender is expressed that is recognized and absorbed and accepted that isn't. Um, And so that's also an idea that I want to explore as well. But I find that really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, So is there anything else that you would like for our listeners to know or any calls to action that can help support your work or even anything that, um, you know, maybe black cis women can do to be better allies or accomplices for black trans women? Yeah, several things. So the first thing that you can do is go to translast.org and sign up for our newsletter. That's the (laughs) best way to keep up with my work and what we're doing. It's super easy. It's so easy that when you go to translast.org, there's a pop-up, you put your email address in and then you carry on. So that's one thing that's really um, simple. I think also um, to cite my work. Um, That's also Mm -hmm. another thing that you can do is look at my readings and then um, the videos that I produced. Uh, Some people choose to use them in teaching environments. Um, I love that and encourage that. They're all on YouTube. Um, They're open source. We do that for a reason because we want Mm -hmm. them to be accessible. So so do that. Um, and you can also have me talk to your class or to your, come to your university. I'm happy to do that. Um, and then there's so many other black trans orgs out there that are also really important that are, that are super easy to find. Many of them are on the Translash website. So do that. Um, I think how to be better allies, you know, it's, it, this is one of my, one of my spiels. Like if you are a black woman of any persuasion and don't understand that the fight for black women's rights regardless of your cis or trans is one struggle that I really don't know what to tell you. And the reason why is because there's so many data points that underscore that point. Uh, the first that's essential is that black trans women are overwhelmingly killed by black men, black mm-hmm. cis men in our communities, men who know us. 90% mm-hmm. of the deaths that are fueling the epidemic are fueled by the murders of black trans women by black cis men. That mm-hmm. mirrors the same for black um, cis women. Black cis women in the United States have the highest incidence of intimate partner violence than any other group in the country. Meaning that, and I think that if you're under the age of 35, that being killed 
by a Black man is one of the top three leading causes of death for Black women. Wow. Black cis women. Wow. So Black men are killing Black women. That's a common struggle. And we're being killed for the same reason because we're not Black men, right? Because mm-hmm. we're all seen as Black women, even if there is a supposed hierarchy in our womanhood. It's the exact same fight. There's no difference. And we're not going to all get free until we undermine patriarchy within the society and within ourselves and understanding the way that Black women help to expand the definition of womanhood, help to undermine the idea of biological determinism, which is the basis for our oppression, um, is essential. Like, that's the work. And so we have to be better allies. And that means supporting Black trans women and our causes. That means Mm -hmm. showing up for us. That means developing Black trans friends. And it can mean encouraging your organizations to speak out. I mean, where are, for instance, Black sororities on the deaths of Black trans women? Haven't said Mm -hmm. anything. Where's the National Council of Negro Women? Haven't said anything. We could go on and on and on. So that's the work. Thank you. That's so important. Um, and I did just want to mention, since you mentioned, um, and you know, showing your work, citing your work, and even teaching it um, at, at Spelman, Beverly Guy Sheftall of the Women's Research and Resource Center, and I did invite you to Spelman. Was it last year to show um, Translash yeah. a part uh, a couple of episodes? And um, you had a wonderful discussion with the students and other, and faculty were there. They were really enthusiastic about the project. I, um, I think especially because part of it was showing you going back home to Atlanta, to Georgia, you know, Georgia and Alabama to visit your family members. So it was very personal. I think the students really um, were very engaged and intrigued by it. And you were so, you know, they really admired your courage in sharing your story um, in that way. Yeah, thank, so thank you. you. That was a that was a, that was a highlight, and I think it's you know it underscores kind of the work um, that is to be be done and that has to be done, right? Um, and the conversations that we we have to create. And I think that 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 work that I did uh, was so important because you know it underscores that Black trans people have families, and mm-hmm. one of the things I got that is how supportive. Um, part of my family is my mother's part of the family um, in my journey and how one of the most supportive people is my, what, now 93-year-old um, great aunt who, like, goes to church every Sunday. And so mm-hmm. that just, in a, in a small town or in southwest Georgia, and that just occurred to me um, when I was doing this is that ultimately then if she can be embracing and accepting of trans people and trans rights, that anyone can that whether or not you're transphobic or not is not a function of where you're born or what you believe mm. or how old you are or what race you are. It really is a choice. Yeah. That's such an important point. So um, thank you so much for engaging in this conversation with us. It was wonderful. I learned so much. I think you have so much um, important information to share and the work that you're doing is so important. Um, and before we close, I did just want to note um, in light of, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, say her name, um, a few of the trans people recently in recent months who have been um, killed, uh, Dominique Remy Fells in Philadelphia, Rhea Milton in Ohio, Tony McDade in Florida, and Nina Pop in Missouri. Um, any closing words, Amara? Yeah, um, I'm stunned that I didn't, when you asked before about Dr. Beverly Crenshaw, that I didn't mention her because her ideas around intersectionality and the entire um, basis for that in the um, Kambahi uh, River Collective statement 
um, is essential to us. And it really calls all of us as Black women to center ourselves in order to get free. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we have to, to hold on to, that we are actually the answers. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Thank you.